Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 142. It's Thursday, September 24th. We are moving through the final days of this 2020 MLB regular season. On this episode, we'll discuss things that we've learned this year and how applicable those things might be to future seasons as we try to build better rosters and uh, win more fantasy championships down the road. It's interesting to think about that when we're still pursuing some championships over the weekend. Uh, we'll talk about a few interesting topics that came in via email, including uh, an idea for a possible sign-and-trade type scenario. So that's a pretty fun thing to get to. You know, before we get started, how's it going for you on this Thursday? Going well. We're heading down the stretch and it's been a bad season for me, fantasy wise. <laughs> I'm, uh, I have to pull off something to to win any leagues this year, and usually I win, you know, something like a third of my leagues. And I I am gonna place top half in maybe half of them, and usually I place top half in like three quarters. So it's not terrible, and you know, I've 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 found ways. I've learned. You know, we're going to talk about that. I've learned a little bit this year, um, but um, I am just sort of hoping for a bit of a miracle in a couple of leagues just so that I come away with some hardware. Yeah, I, I need a little help in NL labor. I think there are seven teams within eight points of first place, and I'm among them, but I'm kind of at the back of that group. So it could be a mid-pack finish or it could be a surprising title on the last day of the season. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Uh, one thing I've noticed, the shortened season in mono leagues, especially the chances of being more clustered up in the standings and having the photo sort of finish. I think those odds are much greater because there's a lot less separation uh, throughout the player pool with distribution of stats being so much more even in a league like that. Uh, Tout wars mixed. I'm trying to hold on to a lead there. Jeff Zimmerman is so pesky because you know, he's, looking at every possible angle every weekend. You know, he's able to do the the math and, and calculate where he needs to go and how figure out how he's going to get there. So every day I look at those standings and I, I see that lead get a little bit smaller. I think that one's going to be really close going into the last day as well. Before we get into some things we learned this year, though, I think we should talk about the schedule for the show. So with the postseason getting underway next week, we are going to have shows every weekday Throughout the playoffs, it's going to be a lot of fun because it's going to be you, it's going to be me, it's going to be Britt, and we're going to be talking about what we're seeing on the field each and every day for these playoffs, which should be a lot of fun. It's going to be a slightly shorter format, uh, so this change is something that we're doing only for October. We're going to get back to fantasy talk, of course, in November, but it's just awesome to have a platform to use to talk about the playoffs because we, had, we didn't really have this uh, set up for a year ago, so I'm just glad we're doing this. Yeah, and I think we've been having fun with Britt on Fridays, so we're going to kind of uh, you know, tighten that up and make it sort of a, a quick hitter every morning and uh, just uh, hang out and enjoy each other's company and your company and, um, you know, just... Uh kind of talk about the issues uh we may you know try to throw some numbers in there but because we're there's not that much i mean i guess there's some dfs but we're not necessarily a dfs show and you know also a lot of times you know i've noticed this like writing previews and stuff i don't want to say you want to throw the stats out but like it's the definition of a short sample and it definitely becomes a little bit more like anything can happen so like focusing on Perhaps the quality of a single pitch by one starter is not necessarily going to help you better understand how that game is going to end. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something exciting happening, though, in the postseason, and I always have this energy where I want to talk about it. So we're going to record in the morning every weekday. Episodes will go out probably Around lunchtime on the West Coast, I would kind of estimate is about when they'll hit the feeds, hopefully a little earlier than that, but that's the, the plan at this point. So hopefully everyone here is excited to hear some more episodes of Rates and Barrels throughout October. Instead of scaling down in October because there's not a lot of fantasy stuff, we're scaling up and shifting the focus to playoff baseball. So let's dig into some things that we learned this season, and it was a good piece by Jeff Zimmerman, naturally, over at Fangraphs, taking a look at some different things that were considered going into the shortened season. And I do think playing the league 
more like it's a fantasy football league was a general strategy that people were trying to employ, trying to make faster decisions, trying to be willing to cut bait when things weren't going well with skills or with roles and saying, you know what, even if this player turns it around on someone else's roster, I'm not holding on to an underperforming player for too long. I'm taking chances and being more aggressive. And I think as I look back at previous years, that's generally been a weakness for me as a fantasy player as being too patient, being too stubborn probably with guys that I expected to break out or guys who I expected to get an early season call up. I think the examples from last season, most prominently Kyle Tucker and Forrest Whitley. Uh, obviously, Tucker has gone on to have a nice season here in 2020, but if you held on to him for most of 2019, you played short a roster spot. And that hurts, especially when you have multiple lineup changes per week and you start missing out on valuable at-bats and valuable playing time. So I think the roster churn and that more aggressive sort of approach, maybe you don't have to be as aggressive as you were in 2020, but I do think it's something you should be thinking a lot about keeping it as a skill going forward. It's a, it's a tricky one for me, and I know that it is weakness for me as well. And I think that it comes from playing uh, sort of dynasty and keeper leagues. You you know, there's this sort of year bad year phenomenon where in a dynasty or keeper league, maybe you find a way to keep them on your bench because they still have value. In, you know, in the year where they figure things out again or they are healthy again. And so you definitely don't want to just jettison a guy who you think will in the long term figure it out. Um, But there is the question of like, you know, will they figure out this year? Is there a nagging injury? Is there something going on? I think in the case of a player that's not playing, um, you know, like a Tucker, it might be easier for me to be like, okay, I've learned this lesson. I'm not going to hold this guy hoping for him to get called up or whatever, whatever. Like there's no obvious reason that... You know, this uh, there's no obvious reason that he'll be called up in the near future. And so I need that roster spot. I can understand that. But, you know, Jeff McNeil, uh, for example, even in this short season, you know, what's it? What's the split on him? He because uh, I, I was able to pick him up in a in, in a keeper league, um, you know, for some rentals. But, uh, you know, in August, he hit 258 with no homers. Um, and, uh, given that he's old for how much experience he has and didn't maybe have a bunch of natural power or speed, you could say, wow, this is a guy who's not hitting for average, uh, who all he does is hit for average. I'm, I'm going to move on. I mean, if you did that, maybe you lived, but, uh, you also missed a 403 September with four homers, uh, 14 RBI, um, you know, uh, and 12 runs like that's, that's a pretty useful, uh, line there. So, um, I like to try and use Statcast to see if someone is healthy and see if they're still hitting the ball like they used to. Um, I like to use strikeout rate to see if there's a big change. I think that Yelich never really got going because you can look at his strikeout rate and say something's wrong there. You know, he's not, Something's wrong in terms of strikeout rate, and strikeout rate becomes kind of meaningful pretty quickly. Um, I'm not saying that you should have just dropped him, I guess, but maybe when you saw three or four weeks into the season he had a 30% strikeout rate, maybe you could have traded him uh, for decent value back then. So um, it's something I struggle with. I always want to. I always want to give a person more time, and and I don't want to overlearn this particular thing next year. I don't think in a 162 game season next year uh, in week two I want to drop a top five round guy because he didn't start out start out right. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to overlearn from a 60 game season in this particular arena. Yeah, and I don't know if I ever would have been thinking about cutting someone quite as good as McNeil. I think you could maybe have talked yourself into it in like a 10 or a 12 team league, but any deeper than that, I feel like you're looking at waiver wire replacements. You don't bring anything close ceiling wise. I'm looking back at some of my drops from the season. I mean, the first week in TGFBI was easy because I had a bunch of guys who were either hurt or opted out. I had Chris Sale, Michael Kopech, Joe Ross, and David Price as drops. It's kind of amazing. That team's actually got a chance to win its league too after losing all those guys right up top. Um, I dropped Tony Gonsolin in week two, which clearly wasn't a good decision based on how things have played out. But at the time, I'm looking back at the shape of his season. 
you would have held him for a bunch of zeros. Even if you'd held him the whole time, you would have held him for a bunch of zeros. He didn't start contributing regularly until August 12th. That was when he had the eight strikeouts against the Padres, and that was only four and two-thirds innings. But early in July or late July, beginning of the season, it was really difficult to justify holding on to him. So you have to accept the fact you will make mistakes like that. Um, you know, While we're on Gonsolin, though, for a second, this is pretty interesting, like what he's been able to do so far this year. The K rate is up from last season. He's basically cut the walk rate in half. You know, the swinging strike rate actually supports the strikeouts that we're seeing. It's only 40 and two-thirds innings, and it's going to be probably just under 50. Once he makes one more start, it's going to be a few postseason opportunities for him most likely as well. What do you see from him looking ahead to 2021? Because you know the rest of season projections especially – we're nowhere close to the amazing ratios that he's put up so far this year. I, I like him. He's north-south, uh, fairly good stuff. Not uh, he's sort of league average-ish command. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that maybe the walk rate will be the biggest difference next year. Uh, but he can survive a, a larger walk rate. And, you know, we haven't still haven't seen him, like, with a season with a league average um, BABIP. So... I have a feeling that there's a chance he gets a little bit overdrafted next year. And it is interesting to me how hard he had to kind of push at the door to open it. You know, it's surprising to me that he wasn't just in the rotation from the beginning of the year, uh, given his track record so far. So I, I wonder if he'll get overdrafted next year. I mean, uh, a projection for like a high threes ERA with a strikeout per inning these days is more closer to an average fantasy pitcher than it is to like a top 30. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a pretty good point. I mean, I think people are also fully on board with the idea that the Dodgers manage their pitching about as well as anybody, and they're going to you know maximize the success of someone. So if he's falling into that 150 to 200 range initially, He's going to move up to the early part of that range. Maybe pick 150 is the sweet spot by the time we get into drafts in March. Worth also pointing out, uh, 2018, 125, 125 innings or so. 2019, 80 innings or so. 40 innings this year. Of course, the innings thing is going to be a real big question for, I guess, everybody. Um, but I think a lot of times people will look back at their max and be like, okay, maybe that's why the, the Dodgers even treat them the way they did. He's kind of their new Maeda where he's going to, you know, start a bunch and look really great starting and then some for some reason be, end up in the bullpen again. Um, and uh, I think I would, you know, project him for like 140 innings next year. Yeah, I think that's fair. So, yeah, a little bit of that Maeda stripling sort of vibe in terms of expected workload. And look, those guys are, are not cheap, even though they, they can return positive value. Uh, but as you start looking at some other things that, you know, you've learned from this year. Multi-position eligibility is something we talked a little bit on Tuesday's show. I think even if your league doesn't make it a lot easier for guys to qualify at multiple positions, I am going to place a little extra weight on guys that I can play at multiple spots, especially if it's not you know two middle infield positions. Like second and short is nice, but second and third is better. Right? Or, or second and outfield or first and outfield. At least having more flexibility across the multi-position designations that's the optimal sort of configuration in terms of being able to easily replace injured players or underperforming players on the fly it's slightly more important than weekly leagues and daily leagues i think in daily leagues you're you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of picking somebody up in case somebody gets hurt um but it's huge in weekly leagues and there's a lot of weekly leagues where the setup is that you can change the hitter for friday um in case someone got hurt so you don't get the full zero and in that case, having a multi-eligible guy on your roster is huge because then, oh, someone got hurt anywhere on your roster, you can you can move think guys around and, and still have a full roster for the weekend. Um, and I think it's just generally something that I will emphasize a little bit more. And I think about it this way, yes, maybe a dollar or two more. Uh, but also just think about it in preparation. So, you know, in preparation for a draft, a lot of times you will sort of highlight the different players that you like. And I think this actually goes from a perspective of building a real life team too. You know, you kind of think, okay, who's our shortstop? Like who are, who are the shortstops I want? Or as a team, you say, who's our shortstop, right? 
And then you you kind of go through each of the positions. I think you just need to t- treat super utility as another position. Like if you want to be a really good team, then you need to have a really good super utility guy. And if you look at it, the Dodgers have always had like Kiki Hernandez, who's kind of almost the patron saint of it at this point. And he, you know, if you look at his line, he's got five eligibilities usually every year. But think of the the uh, Padres training for Jake Cronenworth, you know, asking for Jake Cronenworth in that trade. And a lot of people thought that was a, tra- a, a throw in, and maybe they got a little lucky that he's throwing he's showing so much power because he used to be kind of a less powerful, um, just a contact guy. But one of the things that they probably did like about him was he can play a lot of different positions. He's played shortstop for them. And, um, you know, he ended up playing pretty much every day at second base, but the team was better for having Jake Cronenworth on it at the beginning of the season. And the position that Jake Cronenworth played at the beginning of the season was super utility. And I think if you look at a lot of the better teams out there, they do actually address this. You know, even the Giants have almost made it a philosophy where, like, almost everybody's super utility. You know, like, they go get Donovan Solano, Mauricio Dubon. You know, like, they're just like, hey, we want guys who can play everywhere. So um, that is something I want to learn. And so when I make my list next year and I have a list of late uh, shortstops and late second basemen or dollar second basemen or guys, you know, targets, you know, I'm going to have a super utility target just so that most of my teams have one guy at least that can get moved around a lot. Another reason, the way I would learn this was playing best ball where, you know, having David Fletcher on my best ball team ended up being really, really useful because he's played everywhere on my team in different weeks. And, um, you know, best ball, you don't actually choose where somebody plays, but it, it is really important to have multiple eligibilities. And it is something that uh, projection systems are not that great at picking up. So it is worth putting a dollar or two on top of what the projection system says if you want to go get that one guy that can play all over. Yeah, I mean, looking at Cronenworth, if he gets a 10th game at shortstop, he'll likely qualify at first, second, and short. So at least you got corner, middle, three different spots that you can use him at going into next season. As a hitter, he's really fascinating because... He's shown a really low strikeout rate, 14.9% thus far. He draws walks, 9.9% walk rate. He's a little old, of course, as a 26-year-old rookie. But there's pop, there's speed, there's a good eye, there's a lot of balls in play, and there's defensive versatility that can carry his playing time. What do you think a reasonable price slash ADP actually ends up being for Cronenworth as a guy that maybe doesn't have one spot to call his own every day but plays enough all over the place to come very close to an everyday player's playing time in 2021. I mean, he has an 11% barrel rate. 10% is where I really, you know, take notice of your barrel rate. 9% is basically double league average. So, you know, he's got power and his expected slugging is a hundred points higher than his actual slugging. The expected numbers are a little bit broken. Um, if you look at team X Wobas, uh, 29 teams are underperforming their X Woba. Um, suggests to me that X Wobo is broken. Um, so I'll take that X stat with a grain of salt. But um, at the same time, I like the barrel rate. I think the power's there. He stole some bases. He plays all over. I don't think it would be crazy uh, to take him in the top 150. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I'm trying to come up with similar players we've seen in that range in recent years. So I just got a, a question um and it was for Keeper League, so of course, um, you know, that has some asterisks. But the question was, should um, should we take Fletcher, uh, Cronenworth, um, David Fletcher, uh, Cronenworth, or Ty France? Um, I think Ty France is easy third. But but Cronenworth versus Fletcher, and I, and I took a look at it, and I take Cronenworth over Fletcher. Yeah, more power ceiling, right? I think that's the yeah. the big difference there. I mean, okay, so here's a couple guys that were going around that 150, 175 range. Scott Kingery, he was second, third, and outfield coming into the season. It's and I think even though it didn't work out, I think that's a that's a good pick there. You could miss there and and be fine. 
Uh, Ryan McMahon yeah. had first, second, and third eligibility. I mean, I think those are fair comps for Cronenworth's skill set. And Cronenworth looks a little bit better, honestly, than those two guys even going into next year because Cronenworth has a uh, has a better hold on a primary spot. Well, is that true? Mm. Kingery felt like he was going to either start in center or, th- or third, right? Yeah, and then they decided they liked him better at, at second, so they flipped Segura to third. But he, it looked like he had a spot to call his own. I, I would agree that right. that, was the, okay. that was the look. I, and I guess Kingery, but I think Cronenworth, better track record going in. I mean, fewer flaws at least. Kingery at least had the strikeout rate flaw that we knew about going in. Yeah, those are, those are pretty metrics on Jake Cronenworth's player page. The, the only thing that you look at that you're kind of like, oh, is the age. You know, being just a little older than a typical rookie, but opportunity is opportunity, and I think he has that now in San Diego. So I'll say like that 160 to 175 range, uh, out just outside of the first 10 rounds is probably where Cronenworth begins this draft season. And then perhaps if the Padres do something that makes things a little more crowded, maybe he falls a little, but I, I think I see more reasons to like him than to pass on him if that ends up being what it takes to get him here next season. Uh, let's talk about punting saves. I want to know, did, did you feel comfortable punting saves going into the shortened season? Did it change anything about your approach to that particular category, looking back at how you were building teams in July? Well, I did the worst thing in a few leagues, which I don't, I can't recommend to anybody, but I did like a soft punt where I tried to get the last decent closer that I believed would hold his job all year. But in some cases, um, those closers ended up being Hansel Robles and Hector Neris. So I guess I got what I deserved. I think that's the most difficult place to choose closers because they're the guys that flash skills that are close enough to maybe see them in the upper tier eventually, but they don't usually have the track record to back it up. Or there's one major skills flaw, right? You might get elite strikeouts with an elite walk rate or something, and and you could see it just unraveling very quickly for players like that. But I liked Robles a lot going into the season, and he presented a unique challenge for us because he was among those relievers who'd been in the league for a while who showed a pretty significant velocity bump last season, and I was pretty willing to believe that he could keep it, and I think that's part of why he didn't come back this year and turn in the season we expected. He did not hold those velocity gains from 2019 into the shortened season in 2020. Yes, yeah, yeah. The velocity gains went away. And I guess uh, maybe that's a lesson about velocity pop-ups. Um, and he was a lot worse with less velocity. So that explains that. Hector Neris, I think, um, was a command question mark. And in fact, He's kind of worked all the way back around to being, you know, one step out of being. He might is he, he might be the closer. <laughs> like he might be one of those guys that if you'd given him 162, he would have ended up with like 20 saves by the end of the year. Yeah, would have taken the had the job, lost the job, got the job back, got it back <laughs> sort of route to, to 18 saves where it was like, well, if you were there the whole time, maybe you were disappointed. If you got him for round two when he kind of took the job back and locked it down that was probably the better time to have him on your roster um i, I don't know what it was about naris i didn't draft him anywhere I, I i understood why people liked him i just couldn't talk myself into it he was one of the guys that i was steering away from in that range but very much like leclerc yes uh very very much like leclerc big fastball big split finger no command i keep looking at this though and i keep thinking for saves in the future it's either get in early, pay the premium for the guys that are really locked into the job, or go cheap, soft punt it, as you said, and throw a few darts. If you get it right, you at least have one closer. If you miss, you load it up on everything else. Like That soft punt thing gives you more resources to allocate toward building maybe the best offense in your league or to more effectively stream starters and chase two-star pitchers to max out wins at K's. And a softer punt than the sort of Neris Robles situation because, you know, I've got this league uh, called Barf uh, where I took over for Laura Michaels um, a while back. And um, 
I didn't do too well in it, and I ended up with 15 saves, four and a half points out of 15, um, just right at the bottom there in saves. And my closers right now are, um, it's a weekly league, so Rowan Wick, uh, Jeremy Jeffress, uh, Anthony Bass, and Ryan Helsley. I use the word closer colloquially. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know... That was a team where I think I had Robles and um, some other guys. And I used four roster spots and a fair amount of FAB on this. And I could have used it in other places. And it just didn't work out. Maybe if my FABs had worked out better. uh, I mean, Bass and Jeffress, I didn't even spend that much money on them. So I can't complain too much. And I got... I got like 14 saves. I only have 15 saves on the year. So like I can't complain too much. That's what you're talking about. It's throwing the darts, not spending too much. And I got four and a half points and I didn't invest a lot. But I, the big mistake I was was taking Robles. I could have gotten Bass and Jeffress and Helsley and Wick or whatever with no Robles. And I could have taken a better starting pitcher there or something. You know what I mean? So don't, don't do that. I think, I think the best, um, thing that i'm going to do is what i do usually in labor which is get one stud and then take a long time off because those middle tier closers are just not worth it and take one stud so in in ale labor this year i took liam Hendricks, and um i am one two three four five six exactly middle of the pack in saves I have spent some resources on saves in season. I've spent some fab. I've, you know, I, I fabbed Peter Fairbanks. I fabbed um, a fair amount of those silly Mariners people. <laughs> I, I, I fabbed Jesse Hahn for two bucks. Uh, right now, I've got Jesse Hahn, Gregory Soto, and Liam Hendricks going um, as my relievers. And, you know, they haven't given me a lot of saves. Liam Hendricks has 14. My team has 16. <laughs> um, but my team has 16 because I did invest in uh, in a big-time closer at the top. So I would suggest the same. Get Do stars and scrubs with your closers. I know um, everyone's suggesting do stars and scrubs with everything. So then what do you take in the middle? But <laughs> um, I would try and get one really good closer and then peace out for a while on closers. Yeah, I mean, it's... A fair question to ask if you're supposed to spend up early and you're supposed to control the end game and have the stars and scrubs build, like not everybody can go 20 plus and then five and under for all the players. Like you take in the eighth round. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm looking, I'm looking at my best teams right now. And the, the two guys I had who were in the middle range, they were more than $5, but less than 20 Luke Voigt. That's been nice. He was seven bucks. Uh, Byron Buxton was nine in my mixed tout auction, and Corey Seager was seven. And the only reason those guys weren't twelve and fifteen is because the room was using the stars and scrub strategy. Like the fifteen dollar players went for twenty plus, and the guys that should have been like ten to twelve were going for seven or less. I think mid-round hitters are the way to go. I think Stars and Scrubs makes a lot of sense with pitchers, and then mid-round hitters are good. Like, on this team, this labor team, which is second or third, and it's probably going to end up second or third, um, you know, I got Lourdes Guriel for 15 bucks. Heck yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I got Nick... I have Nick Solak on the team. I got Hunter Dozier for 15 bucks. I'll take it. Sean Murphy, 11 bucks. I'll take it. You know, there's a lot of $10 players out there that are worth it. You know, um, and a lot of mid-round bats that did well. So I would I would suggest something where you take you know take a couple starters and a closer in the first six rounds. That means you only have three hitters. It's 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 going to be okay. Then you can take a bunch of hitters. Yeah, I feel more confident in my ability to find hitters that will exceed expectations between pick one hundred and pick two hundred. Then I feel about my ability to completely nail the pitching in that range. Like I feel like I do fine with the the 100 to 200 range pitchers. There are guys that make the leap in that group. I'm not as good as at finding them as other people are. 
Well, I don't know. I think you'll just also find that one out of those two works out, right? So you'll take you know take five pitchers in those ten rounds, and you get two or three pitchers out of it. I don't. I don't. You know, I try to find them, and I think I do a good job finding them. And I also don't find them. You know, I also have failures in that in that range. So I I think uh, you know the mid round pitchers. And also, sometimes you'll find that a guy that you like, if you have a collection of guys that you like, let's say you like five mid-round pitchers, if you wait really long on those, you'll find one or two of them drop because you like a pitcher for different reasons than somebody else, right? So take a bunch of mid-round hitters and then take the dropper mid-round pitcher. You're just not as investing as much in a mid-round pitcher. Yeah, so I think for me, the the main takeaway here is like, I've punted saves before. I don't have to punt it completely. You don't ignore it. You just spend less if you don't get the top-end closer or closers that you're comfortable with early on in your auction or your draft. Uh, last thing, what did we learn this year? So roster churn and being more aggressive. Multi-eligible position players are, are more important than ever. Uh, punting saves is actually viable. You just got to be a little more careful about how you do it. Newly useful DH types. Guys that are finding more playing time than expected because of the universal DH, it leads us to an immediate question. Is it really here to stay? Are we going to have universal DH again in 2021? Because if we do, I think that opens up a lot more value yet again on the hitting side. Yeah, and Jeff Zimmerman made the, the point that people didn't react to it very well uh, or, or quickly. And... Um, that is something that we may deal with. I mean, as as more calm as the world seems now and as it seems... Like, I don't think a lot of people are questioning whether or not we'll play baseball next year. Um, there's still going to be a fair amount of stuff that gets figured out in the spring, I think. You know? Um, and if there is a big change in the rules in the spring, um, even something about playoffs it could have some impact on you know on expanded playoffs could have an impact on fantasy we'll, we'll have to try and figure it out on this show but you know i would say that if there is a big change in spring that's a great time to draft and i agree with jeff zimmerman that um relying on the projection systems in those moments is a good idea and that the people that draft a little bit more on feel and gut will be left behind as they tr- they struggle to make the sort of mathematical adjustment that it requires to uh, deal with, uh, you know, 500, 600 more plate appearances per team. Yeah, it, it's a big it's a big change to, to have a lot of guys who would have been maybe squeezed out of a start or two per week getting closer to that playing time max as a result of, of having that universal DH. I really do hope it's here to stay, though. I, I prefer it so much to the old NL rules. Yeah, and uh, it is nice to have a, a few more batters to to, to use, um, especially in the deep leagues. But, you know, you think about what you thought about Robinson Cano going into the season in terms of his playing time, um, what you might have thought about someone even like a, a Garrett Cooper, um, if he was going to be useful this season, Rowdy Telez, I was um, tooting his horn all season, and I know that he, he plays in a league where they already had a DH, but um, you know it requires a little bit of a mindset change or just you know uh, a, a math toggle, which is why you can just kind of use depth charts or, or the bat or whatever it is. Uh, Colin Moran, I think. Um, wouldn't have had as much playing time this year if if not for the DH in the in the NL. Um, Andrew McCutcheon ended up playing there a lot, although you probably would have uh, put him in those pants anyway. But Matt Carpenter and we said that like Matt Carpenter and Tommy Edmond, there might be a fifty fifty chance that one of them isn't playing all year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then the DH dropped in. You should have immediately. Um, you know, I guess drafted Tommy Edmund because <laughs> although Matt Carpenter got a lot of at bats, I don't know that anybody wanted that 182 average and four homers on their roster. And that was among the things that went wrong in one of my auctions. He was a uh, part of my stars and scrubs bills. I thought that playing time was safe, and man, that was uh, <laughs> that was a gift that just kept on right hurting. Process, yeah, right process, wrong results. Yeah, had a, had a few missteps in uh, the GDD. Got them, 
Diamond District League that I joined this year. A rare auction miss for me, but uh, yeah, I, I do think the the numbers are going to get that adjustment right. Then feel there are some things you kind of do with feel on draft day or in draft prep. That's not one of them. Adjusting playing time for something like the Universal DH, something you want to leave to the actual projection systems because they're going to be a lot more precise with those changes. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually it just gets brushed off or it's avoided altogether with excuses. But with Roman, it's easy to talk about it with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. Medication is appropriate. Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is easy. Just go to GetRoman.com rates and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com rates today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com rates. GetRoman.com rates. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. All right, you know, let's get to a few mailbag questions as we discuss top 25 hitters for 2021 on last Thursday's show. We got a couple follow-up emails. This one comes from Levi. He wanted to know if we perhaps forgot Kyle Lewis and Keston Hira as we were putting that list, that group together. Yeah, those guys also didn't come up in our follow-up conversations about the, the next group, and I think they belong in the conversation with the next group beyond the top 25, but... With Hira in particular, we talked about him a few weeks ago. The biggest issue continues to be the high fastball. The strikeout rate is through the roof right now. I don't think it's always going to be there, but it's the kind of adjustment that it's going to take an offseason to make. I think the mechanics of his swing need a little bit of refinement. He's kind of got the leg kick and the toe tap, so perhaps that's part of the reason he's not getting the bat into that part of the zone quickly enough. Uh, But I, I do think with Kyle Lewis... People are losing sight of just how much was expected of him when he was drafted, right? The injuries washed away some of those expectations. He was an 11th overall pick back in 2016, had a lot of power coming out of college. He's showing us a lot of growth in the shortened season, right? He's hitting the ball in the air more this season than he did during his brief debut at the Mariners at the end of last year. The K rate's way down. He's walking a lot, and he's chipping in some steals, too. I mean, 11 homers, 4 steals, a 277, 378, 462 line. That slug actually seems a bit on the low side compared to where my longer-term expectations would be for him. Uh, so what do you make of what we've seen of Kyle Lewis in 2020? You know, they're they're going in different directions, and uh, it might be weird to say this, but I think that um, the risk for both of them is batting average. And it's Way more obvious when you're talking about Keston Hira because he's hitting like 210 or whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, Kyle Lewis is hitting nearly 280. Uh, but at the same time, with a 28% strikeout rate uh, from Kyle Lewis, uh, 27, projected for 30, uh, ran a, a 29 in double A, and uh, has had some 30s in the minor leagues. Like, I do think that. Uh, a more sober projection for him next year might be like a 240 or 250 batting average, um, which takes some of the value away. But if he's actually going to steal bases and he has four against five attempts this year and he's going to stay healthy and steal bases. Uh, and I do think that the past injury, the injury stuff is, is a risk for him. Um, so between those two, I have a feeling he'll be overdrafted next year. And I benefited from four or five shares of this guy uh, because he hits the ball so hard. But it's a little bit like Tony Gonsolin. I've got four or five shares of Tony Gonsolin. i got four or five shares of Kyle Lewis. And I think next year I'll have one share of either because they'll zoom past um, 
due to recency bias, they'll zoom past kind of where I'm comfortable with them. So if you tell me that next year, um, where do you think he'll go? Because I, I, I have him, you know, sort of just I'm squinting my eyes here literally and looking at his Fangraphs page and saying 250, 25 homers, 10 steals. That would put him, if that's sort of the projection, if that's what gets spit out when the first wave of projections comes out, mm. I think that carries him to a top 100 ADP, probably back of the top 100, somewhere in like the 80 to 90 range if I had to be a little more precise. But 80 to 100 is kind of the, the broader window of where I think Kyle Lewis could go. Um, I, I mean, I think, again, that, that prospect pedigree and the fact that he's running a little bit on top of all that, if the stat cast numbers look good, that's one of the things that could really add a little extra juice to a young player's ADP. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see uh, a little bit of a uh, would you rather. Let's see here. I'm trying to pick up. Um, so we're talking 100 to 150? I think he's going above that. I think he's going to be more like the 80 to 100 range. He may start a little outside the top 100 and creep up. Let's say, would you rather Alex Verdugo or Kyle Lewis? That's a nice toss-up right off the top. Verdugo, his Verdugo showed you enough to where you're not worried about his back injury anymore. I would say that um, whatever injury risk Alex Verdugo has, Kyle Lewis has about the same. Yeah, multiple knee injuries versus Verdugo's back stuff. Looking good now in, in their sort of physical primes. Mm. I don't think Verdugo is going to run a whole lot more than he's running now either. So you're not getting a stolen base lift. You're getting a much higher batting average floor. But the batting average is is rarer and more valuable than the 20 to 25 homers. Yeah. Wow. Mm. I'm inclined to say Verdugo. I don't think Verdugo is going to go as high as Lewis, though. I don't think he's going to be way I, off. I, I, but I, I mean, I think price-wise, I think there's going to be more helium on Lewis because I, I'm trying to get inside the minds of how the minds of everybody else and think like, okay, mm-hmm. like what, what do they care about? They care about barrel rate. They care about X Wilbo. They care about sprint speed. They want to see little red dots all over the stat cast page. Like that's that's what mm-hmm. drives people to be more aggressive with players right now. Verdugo has some of that, but he has a lot less than Lewis, especially with the power metrics. Right, you see. A 34th percentile expo, but even if that's broken, if people are looking at that compared to where Lewis is at, they're going to look at him and say, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know about that power. He didn't run a ton in the minor leagues. Is he just a mostly batting average guy who's going to have to too many ground balls? Is he going to have to live on his batting average and where he's hitting in the batting order? Like, I think that's well, a I mean, fair I think question if you give to ask. Me a round, if you give me a round, I might, I might take Verdugo easily. Um, here's another one. Nick Castellanos. Castellanos over Lewis for me is the way to go. If you're buying that skill set, don't you want a multi-year track record with fewer health concerns? You're also getting a better supporting Smaller cast. Smaller strikeout rate, better park. Way better supporting cast. I mean, Reds lineup More versus Seattle's lineup. Regress into, like, re-progress or whatever it is, re-positive regression towards a, a better batting average than negative regression away from a, a good batting average. Yeah, I I don't I mean, see that slash line hit coming 274 back. for his career. I doubt he's going to hit 226 next year. No, he, I mean he's on the long list of players with the inflated K rate this year. And you look and you try to figure out why, and there's just not a not an easy answer to that question right now. You could speculate a lot. Uh, for me, it's in game video is going to be one of those things that people are going to hear a lot about that, and that's going to be thrown out there as something that was different that may have caused otherwise consistent good hitters to strike out a lot more and it could be something else like it could be any number of things fewest fastballs of his career and most breaking balls of his career part of a common story there um i got a follow-up question on that we've talked about the schedule and how weird that's been this year and and not seeing fewer mm, teams do you think seeing fewer teams the scouting reports get a little more crisp when it comes to figuring uh, guys out but also just weird quirks of the schedule where Let's say you uh, like you aren't great against changeups. There's a lot of people who aren't great against changeups. There aren't that many great changeups in the league. But let's say you are on the Pirates and you have to see friggin' Luis Castillo <laughs> like a million times that year. You know, 
Um, like, for example, like I see Castellanos is up to 12% curveballs. He's never been, you know, it's been a while since he, he had 10.6 in 2017, but it's been a while since then. He hasn't been above 10%. Maybe he just in a division with a lot of good curveballs. You know, you don't, the scouting port only goes to a certain extent, right? Like, you, let's say, like, you're not going to ask uh, Trevor Bauer to throw his change up a bunch against Nick, like, Castellanos, because Castellanos, we wouldn't ask him to do that at all. But you know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't ask Trevor Bauer to throw his change up a lot against a guy who's not that great against change ups because Trevor Bauer's change up is not that great. Right. Right. So, so there's, there's yeah. an interaction between personnel and scouting report that matters and this year that interaction is a little bit broken and will be less broken next year well if we look at the price on castellanos this year just thinking about that versus lewis his adp was 70 he might go a little bit later 10 15 picks people could be scared off by the low average but i think they might have very similar adps yeah so that one definitely i could see being like real close because they similar types of output too would be expected from those two players uh let's see one more for kyle lewis let's go kyle lewis or Eddie Rosario? Um, I'm actually, you know, Rosario's 28 um, and not stealing bases anymore. If it is really a one-for-one choice, what I have noticed is Rosario seems to go later and for less than he deserves to go. He's, a, he's somehow become vanilla. I think people do focus on the fact that the batting average is meh, the... Um, you know, the steals are gone. And so, you know, they're, they're not sure about him. And, you know, there have been years where he just had okay power, not necessarily better power. So, um, if they are actually right next to each other, I think I will take Kai Lewis, but I also have the feeling that they won't be next to each other and Rosario will be un- under drafted again. I actually think Rosario is going to be closer to Verdugo in price, like a round or two later than Castellanos and Lewis for a lot of the same reasons. Blue ink on that stat cast page. Uh, similar profiles, I think, with those two players as well. Uh, so, okay, so we've, we've got a, a good sense of Lewis not being in that top 50 overall, but probably being in the next 25 or so among hitters after mm-hmm. the first 25. You know, with Hira, he was going pretty high. ADP was 40, I think, in July. Second base is my one personal asterisk. I will have probably a second base plan for all of my leagues next year. I, d- I know that the numbers, you know, aren't so sure that positions matter. But second base is also where you put, you, you don't put a top, pro- like it's very rare. Here is a rare prospect at second base. Usually second basemen are people that we're going to play in other places. And actually, I don't think he's a second baseman long term either. For what it's worth, I, I yeah. his defense is brutal. <laughs> Defensive numbers don't love him. Yeah, yeah. But so here is uh, it, the second base is kind of where you put someone. So it would make sense actually that second base might not be as good of a place. Also, I played second base, so I know that's where you put your crappy player. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it is a place where you kind of put someone that you like Cronenworth, right? Like think about how the Padres are built. The Padres built. Center, like they went and got Trent Grisham for 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 center field, and they, you know, Tatis is their star, and they signed a third baseman, they signed a first baseman, and then they just said, okay, well, we've got Profar and Cronenworth and Brian Dozier, and you know, one of these guys will play second. So um, I want to have a second base plan next year, and so that matters to me a little bit in terms of like the choice between Hura and Lewis, like. I may just take Hura over Lewis for positional value is another thing is another way of saying it. Check this out real quick. Second base earn values over at Rotowire for this season. Three have earned more than $20. Brandon Lau, Whit Merrifield, DJ LeMayhew. They're at 28, 28, and 27, respectively. They all have eligibility at other spots as well. Then there's a big drop. Chris Taylor is actually tied for third wow. with Kevin Biggio. Then Robinson Cano, who's actually missed time with, I think it was wow. a hamstring injury. And Hira is, is still in the top 10. Jerks and Profar is eighth. And then Gene Segura, Donovan Solano, and Wilmer Flores round out the top 11. How many of those would you have played? Like, how many of those were drafted as top 12 second basemen? Like, three, four? 
Whit Merrifield was the only one who was really close to the the top five near the top of the board. The, the, in the next five, LeMahieu was in the next five. And there's a bunch of non-drafted second, like people like Solana was not drafted. You know? No, he's doing it a weird, weird way too. And even Lau was kind of like back end guy. Yeah, Lau was fringe top two hundred, right? I mean, he wasn't. He wasn't. I may have lists. a fair amount of shares of of Lau and. Hero next year is what I is how I kind of see it. I think Hero is going to fall. If I had to try and figure out like what his ADP is going to look like, is he still in the top one hundred overall? Like, is he actually in the the Kyle Lewis range? Even though they they do pretty different things, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm giving them similar projections. Uh, Two fifty batting average for both, you know, and um, you know, I think I would give Hero more power. You know, 27 homers. Uh, I might give Hura more stolen bases too, uh, but I would give Hura a little bit more sort of collapse risk that he doesn't figure it out, you know? You know who he's kind of weirdly similar to as a hitter, and I I think it's bizarre, is, is Gary Sanchez. Like, he strikes out even mm. more than Gary Sanchez does. But you have it's this little premium position. Rockets. He hits the ball hard, so you, you get home runs, but you're getting this kind of funky downside in the batting average that you shouldn't really be getting for a player like that. And obviously, Hero runs better than Sanchez and things, but uh, I think that's sort of the risk profile that you're looking at. You have more ceiling, I think, even that, though with Hero, because look at those. Before AAA, he, he, had like a, he was running 20% strikeout rates. Like if he unlocks something in the offseason and comes back and strikes out 24% of the time, he's going to have a monster season. Right. Now we're looking at about a full season's worth of plate appearances in the big leagues for Hira, stretched out over the last two years. He's got a 32 home run, 12 stolen base total so far, a 267, 342, 515 line, and he's pulled it off with a 32.3% K rate thus far. I think I think the K rate has to go if he wants to keep the rest of that. Yeah, and then you get to the next level of this question. That's something I really want to write about and dig into a lot in the offseason is how much does your minor league K rate matter when it comes to projecting your long-term K rate in the big leagues? Because I keep looking For at those minor league numbers. Less than three years or less than two years. Right. Or, I mean, there's yeah. going to be there's a ton of different ways it can play out. Obviously, every hitter is unique. You can go through a major swing change. There's, there's all sorts of reasons you could stagnate or, or get a lot better. But you keep looking at Hira, and you just want to tell yourself, how could he possibly strike out this much? But guys in the minors where he was striking out a lot less, they don't throw high fastballs like that. High fastballs with command in in high A, double A, how many guys have that? I mean, if your flaw is something that you don't see in the minor leagues, it's really difficult to get a sense of whether or not you could correct to beat or overcome that flaw. But I see some... I see some like little bits of progress when it comes to you know swinging less and reaching less and I don't know. Also, you know, this is just a, a thing that happens. This is a thing that happens, and it's a test for the future. And it is maybe something that you may want to think about in terms of drafting for the future. Is a rookie coming off uh, a great short sample season and Hero only did like 350 plate appearances uh, may not have hit that point where the league found something out about them and they uh, had to adjust back on it. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think it's true of, of pitchers, too, who come up and you know you get eight or ten starts this year and you look pretty good. The league hasn't necessarily solved you quite yet. Like They're they're still going through that adjustment phase. They think of Paddock. Uh, so, you know, there's this weird... The, the hardest... I think one of the hardest things about modern fantasy baseball is this interaction between youth and track record and the fact that baseball as a whole is going towards youth you're seeing more and more debuts every year you're seeing the more and more share go to players on minimum salary you're just seeing the 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 average age go down so it's a game of youth it's a game that focuses on athleticism and therefore you need the youth it's all about velocity and bat speed and these things are the you know the purveyance of, 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 of the youth at the same time you want to draft someone who's proven they can adjust back and has done it before and you know so how high are you going to take Corbin Burns next year and you know, how high are you going to take even a guy like Framber Valdez? You know, how are you, how high are you going to take these guys that haven't really um, done it year in and year out? Um, where are you going to take Aaron Savali next year? 
so, you know, I think these things are the hardest questions in baseball. Yeah, rookies in this season in particular, even more difficult to figure out. There's actually a rookie-eligible player that someone asked about. Sean wrote us an email and wrote, What am I to make of Edwin Rios? The service stats this year aren't exactly great, but he is providing power. He's dropped his K rate this season as well. I think he's sitting now with about a 125 WRC plus. Yeah, he's at a 125. 236, 291, 569. So a very power-heavy skill set from Edwin Rios. He's popped up on uh, low-volume stat cast leaderboards for us at least once in the past coming into this season and maybe even one time the year before that as well. Kind of seems like a guy that needs to trade more than anything else. I just don't know if the Dodgers are going to commit to giving him regular run, even if we do have the universal DH again next season. He's a lefty, so it doesn't work uh, exactly, but Jose Martinez vibes? Mm-hmm. I will say that he is, I think he has moved ahead of like Matt Beatty as someone who could be the DH next year if the National League has a DH next year. He brings a lot more ceiling than Beatty. There's no doubt about that. So I think if you're looking at... He whoops the ball. He's whooping it again. 12% barrel rate. I like him for like leagues like NL Labor. I like him for draft and hold. I like him in very deep dynasty leagues just to see what happens as a late season sort of pickup and just hold up to the offseason and see if that opportunity arises. But He graduates out of that group, I think, if if you know there's an NLDH. Then he becomes a late-round guy, um, a bench guy in 15-teamers, I think. He's an ideal guy that you could take you know, very late in a 15-round thing, and then if he doesn't end up being the DH, he's a dropper in your first couple weeks. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair description of, of where he's at. He could hit 250 with 25 bombs for you. That's not bad for an endgame pick, by the way. Uh, it kind of like, right. you're like 250, 25 homers. Like, you know, that's actually really good. Where you're going to get Edwin Rios going into next season. Uh, thanks a lot for the question, Sean. Next question here came from George. Uh, he writes, "This is from about two weeks ago." Devin Williams looks like he could be a top shelf relief pitcher. Yes, he does. He's kind of uh, getting all the accolades for it now. I picked him up for a dollar. My N only keeper league uses saves plus holds divided by two. The league recently voted to increase salaries two dollars before okay. next season. Uh, my evil, making my evil plan to nail down the bulk of my pitching staff for 21, 2021 this season more likely to work. Uh, yeah, I mean, Devin Williams is a great pickup. If you picked him up cheap, he's definitely a staff filler. There's a non-zero chance he's getting saves next year, too. I don't, I don't love the idea of, like, you know, some leagues you have to sign a guy for many years. Or, like, you know, if we're talking real baseball, like, I don't love, I don't think the Brewers will, like, offer him one of those like five-year deals or something you know <laughs> like uh, i just say this because it's a screwball i think and um the history of health and screwballers is not uh, a long one no it's it's not but he's a great stash in those deeper leagues like that so if you picked him up this year it's found money at this point uh, he also has a question though about luis garcia should we be worried that Luis Garcia is not going to have a regular path to playing time in 2021? Like I look at him, I, I see a guy that they're definitely committed to. Like Luis Garcia looks the part of a big leaguer so far this season. Like, Why will he not have? Because who's somebody coming back? Because of Kendrick or Castro? I think he's got that job. I mean, he seems to be doing. Um, he's a free agent in 2022, so it's a two-year deal. So I guess Castro could be there, but. Keyboom, he seems, you know, Garcia seems to be a little bit ahead of Keyboom. And yeah. so you just move Castro to third or, or move Garcia to third. And I would, I would, I would say one of Keyboom or Garcia is going to have a everyday role. And that Garcia is ahead of Keyboom for that right now. I agree. I mean, we just haven't seen that much from Keyboom yet this season either. And I know it's tough when playing time gets, uh, taken away as quickly as they've taken it away from him each of the last two seasons, but. So far, it, it doesn't look good. There's probably just a, a buy low in principle on Carter Keyboom. But if I'm projecting who's going to play more, Garcia, because of his defense, I think, is also a lot safer. But also, just to not to be like a wet blanket, but like, you know, neither may be a fantasy asset next year. I mean, you should be more worried about Garcia's lack of power. 
Right. Yeah, Garcia could just be a very empty, plays every day sort of player in the early parts of his career. He's so young. He'll turn 21 in May of next year. So mm. the power could be a couple of years away from truly developing. And if he's not stealing bases, then you're looking at a guy who's average and, and runs are pretty much the only thing he's doing to provide value because he's going to get stuck maybe in the bottom third of the batting order. Uh, but as far as like an yeah. NL only league goes, I'm not really worried about how much Garcia is going to play in 2021. And then one more question on the AL side, Justin Dunn, uh, one of the young starters who's had an opportunity in Seattle this season. Uh, what are your thoughts on Dunn as we look ahead to next season? You know, uh, going into the season, um, Dunn and Sheffield had both below average stuff and below average command. Um, Dunn's command was lower than Sheffield's and I thought I saw enough in Sheffield's secondaries to like Sheffield more. Um, I'm going to stick to that. I haven't seen enough improvement in Dunn's command uh, to believe in him. So I don't... Even when he's pitched well, like 275 ERA in the last 30 days, but 17 walks in his last 19 and two-thirds innings. He just can't, can't get away from those free passes and... It's hard to live on that. Really hard to live on that. So I'm I'd not, be very careful with Dunn. I see him as more of like a reserve pick for AL-only leagues next year rather than someone you're going to throw a few bucks at in the end game. Yeah, AL streamer type. You know, could have some uh, times where he's playing in like cold Oakland or cold Seattle and, you know, can you know have some decent games, but I don't know that I would uh, depend on him in any way. Yeah, so I think we're in agreement on Justin Dunn. Thanks a lot for the question, George. Last question we're going to get to today. We talked about Trevor Bauer maybe signing this really unique uh, one-year deal worth $30-plus million. Uh, Dan wrote us an email and was asking about the possibility of a sign-and-trade with the goal of getting prospects back in the return. So a team that isn't spending a lot on payroll, has room up against the luxury tax would theoretically sign Bauer to that one year, 30 plus million dollar contract, and then immediately offer him to any team in the league in exchange for prospects. This would be an attempt to buy prospects, not totally unlike what we saw the Giants do, uh, taking on Zach Cozart's deal to get Will Wilson from the Angels, right? So you, you absorb 10 plus million in payroll, but you get a first round pick along as part of that deal. So Dan wants to know, is this crazy or is this genius? Well, first of all, as it's written, it's not possible. Um, there is a rule in the CBA that um, requires that a player that signs with a new team has to stay with their new team until June 15th. So I do want to give credit, though, to this as an idea. I think that teams are always thinking about finding ways to buy prospects. Because baseball has limited spending on the draft and limited international spending, there any way that a team can figure out to buy a prospect outside of those two structures, they will do because they want to gather these assets. Um, that's why I think you've seen international spending went through the roof and then kind of came back to the fold a little bit. So I would say that um, it's a good idea. It just wouldn't work exactly as you said. You would have to wait till June. And then there's more hurdles. I think you were kind of thinking about some of the other hurdles. Yeah, one thing that crossed my mind is we're not talking about a, a long-term deal with you know tens of millions of dollars on it. Since we're talking about a, an expiring contract, it would be interesting to see if the commissioner's office would actually approve that trade. Because cash moving in a deal has to be approved by the commissioner's office. We haven't seen anything quite like this before, so there's at least a chance that it'd get rejected uh, based on that. And then the other thing you have to start thinking about is if you got to wait till June, you're only getting Bauer for about four months. And you know, even though you're not paying for Bauer for four months, he's still a rental. So how good of a prospect or how, how many quality prospects are you really going to be willing to give up for four months of a top 10, top 15, top 20 starting pitcher. I think that's kind of the other problem that you start to run into as well. And then there's the fact that they could have uh, just spent the money and not given up the prospects, which is um, really uh, important to some teams, right? Um, but uh, I did want to point out that this has been done before in a few different ways. The one that first came to mind was um, 
sending, uh, it was a hurt pitcher, I forget who it was, for Tuki Toussaint um, uh, to the D-backs. Or maybe they got a hurt pitcher along with, that's what it was. Um, they got a hurt pitcher that was due, due money, and the D-backs didn't want to spend that money, didn't want to pay that money. And so they sent Tuki Toussaint and a hurt pitcher to the Braves. Yeah, it was Bronson Arroyo. So it was it was Bronson Arroyo and Tukey for Phil Gosselin. Right, and Phil Gosselin was not a uh, a prospect at that point, really. He was just kind of like, and he wasn't even a very good utility player. So he was just kind of um, an extra guy, kind of maybe a 25th man of the best. So I would say that um, that one qualifies. There's also Phil Hughes to the Padres. Um Phil Hughes got traded to the Padres along with some cash. The Twins did uh, defray the salary a little bit. Hughes was hurt. He wasn't going to pitch for the Padres. Although they have him here in a Padres uniform. I think he did pitch for them a little bit because he got released in August. That trade happened in late May. But he was due a fair amount of money, and I think the Twins didn't really want to pay that. And the Padres got a the 74th pick in the 2018 draft and a minor league catcher named Hanikson. Via Lobos. Via Lobos. I'm, t- I'm taking my Duolingo, all right? <laughs> Jeez. No, I, you know, somebody somebody crushed you for your um, pronunciation of palatable on the last episode. What did I say? Palatable? Palatable, yeah. You know what happened? I also went to England and lived there for two years, and I have to tell you, man, things are weird there. <laughs> what was it? The one that was really funny was in, innovative. Oh, really I haven't heard that one before. I've heard aluminium from uh, yeah. from Top Gear. <laughs> They're talking about like a, the body of a car, and I just think aluminium is weird. You figured out who the the seventy fourth pick though was, right? Yeah, Grant Little, uh, an outfielder, I think from Texas Tech. He's been a little old for the level. hasn't shown any power yet. He's kind of like a fringe top it thirty prospect out. in the org. It, yeah, they didn't they didn't crush it with that particular pick, but you. You know there are players who go in that range who are impact players, so it's a, it's a shot worth taking. It's a little bit like the strategy that uh, teams take when they sign um, young players to extensions. You know, sometimes you get the first Evan Longoria deal. Sometimes you get uh, who was it, Jonathan Singleton? Yeah, and that was a lot less money even than some of those other deals. Yeah, so you know, I think teams are willing to do it if. If they just offer, if they just continually buy prospects for only money, they will uh, eventually get one, and that one will pay for all the other efforts. That's the idea. Is, you know, paying Evan Longoria uh, so little in the beginning of his career uh, probably paid for any other missteps they made that were similar. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make as well. Uh, thanks a lot for the question, Dan. Lots of great questions that have been coming in. So, yeah, keep them coming. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. It's going to be more playoff-specific stuff, of course, for the next month. But we can always sprinkle in good questions as they come about. On Twitter, he's at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. And before we go, I should say, if you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, this is a good time to get one. Theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Get all of Eno's articles, all the playoff coverage, all the early 2021 fantasy baseball stuff that'll start trickling out here in the weeks and months ahead. Plus, of course, fantasy football and any other sports you're interested in as well. If you're enjoying our show on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, we really appreciate it if you take a moment to do that. It takes a minute or two, and it goes a long way to support the pod. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.